our scripture verse this morning. Uh, Pastor Albert is in John chapter 9. So let me read to you from the beginning of John chapter 9. That's page 895, if you'd like to read along in your pew Bible. As Jesus passed, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Saddam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, yes, we're going to be going through that entire chapter, so uh, 41 verses. I'll try to be concise and uh, get through them. If you are new to our church, something that you'll notice maybe pretty quickly is that it's a church full of introverts. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Um, but some of you extroverts, thank you for being here. We absolutely need you. And we're just not a very demonstrative bunch, as you can tell, with like worship. I didn't even look back. I was, I was using this screen to look and like... I don't know, maybe I miss someone, but we're not like the hands-holding crowd or like swaying or clapping. Or I wish we were, but we're just not. We're just not. We're just not that type of crowd, and we're not the type of crowd to go to like a Warriors game and cheer and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And we're not the crowd that goes crazy. I'm an introvert myself, and when I go to my kids' ball games or whatever, I'm not the one to like go all crazy and things like that. So I'm not the one to embarrass my kids. But if there was a time to cheer in the Bible, it's this chapter, right? The, the blind man cheering, the people around to notice this awesome miracle, uh, to see Jesus at work. Like if there was a time to cheer, it would be like this. And sometimes we, we read these accounts as just a story that happened thousands of years ago. And sometimes we have to put on a lens of journalism, to pretend to read it like you're reading the Wall Street Journal and it's just coming out to you because this really happened. And if you were to pick up a newspaper and to read it like this, it would be different than reading it from a book years later. And so just to have it be read differently. When reading John, he really weaves in these words, he really weaves in these phrases that he wants to get across. And so you'll notice a word like light or a phrase like light of the world. And a big event John uses in this gospel is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. In Jerusalem, when the people would celebrate that God provided for them in the wilderness this water as recorded in Exodus, it's this festival to remember, to commemorate, to celebrate God providing that water for them, providing that light for them, that light in the darkness, that light during the day, as they were being led into the promised land. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Jesus declaring himself to be this everlasting water, to be this light of life, and that 
Those who drink of him will be satisfied, and, and that symbolic water from the pool of Siloam was poured out at the base of this sacrificial altar at the temple until the arrival of Messiah. Well, Jesus announces, he proclaims, he cries out, that is him, that, that he is the Messiah at that last day, that great day. Jesus, the light of the world, and those who follow him will no longer walk in darkness, and again, he brings light into this temple. This courtyard had these bright lamps in them that shined so brightly in this dark night sky and people sang and they danced until Messiah arrived. And there he is again saying, I'm here. I've, I've arrived. And so this living water, this light of life arrived and Jesus proclaimed this to the people at the end of this water festival, at the end of this light festival. And those two significant chapters in chapter 7 and 8 lead us into chapter 9, where this man who was born blind is healed of this lifelong blindness, that Jesus used water to make mud spit, made mud, and put it on his eyes, and that light entered the man's blind eyes, and with that water and with that light, he saw Messiah. He saw Jesus. Now, there's a great purpose in this particular miracle because it's in this miracle that Jesus taught about the transforming power of the kingdom. That in this miracle that Jesus shows his kingship in the kingdom, that he has authority and power in the kingdom. That what he said so far in chapter 7 and 8 in particular are true and are evidenced by what he's able to do. John points out this culmination of these things in chapter 9, this healing, this giving of sight to a man born blind, that God is so gracious in this miraculous transformation. So let's go back to verses 1 through 3 just as a reminder of what was read here. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now notice this. That the disciples are looking for a cause for this man's blindness. And then Jesus redirects them to not look at this cause, but to look at God's purposes for this man in God giving the man sight. So it's not a matter of this man's sin or his parents' sin. It's about God's purposes being fulfilled in this man's life. How will God be glorified in this man? And so this is how Christians are to think about those challenging circumstances in our life, about those challenging situations in our life. You see, Jesus' people, people who belong to Jesus, don't look at things, hopefully, from a worldly perspective. But often we do. Worldly people look at causation. They want to get back to what caused this and wonder, now, how do we fix that? How do we untangle this entangled thing? How do we correct this problem that was caused by this, that made this difficult situation or circumstance happen. And so worldly people look at why things are the way they are. Now this is what might make some of you really uncomfortable right now because this is what the world has taught us. This is how we fix things. We're trained 
to do these things. A lot of our jobs are exactly this. We fix things that go wrong. But this isn't actually God's way. This isn't what John chapter 9 is pointing out. The people of Jesus, our first reaction is not about us. It's not about what we can do at all. It's this. How does God mean to glorify himself in a terrible situation? What does God do? And so we don't look at our flesh. We look to God. And this is what prayer is all about. I'm sure you guys have heard a lot of these people when something bad goes on and then people are texting or tweeting or whatever they're doing and they're saying like prayers, thoughts go out and then you have this rebuttal from all these other people. We're tired of prayers. We're tired of good thoughts. People need to do something. They want action. They want something to be done and this is what I'm precisely talking about. This is what I'm attempting to address is that People of the flesh, people of the world, of course their reaction is what they can do because that's all that they have. Spiritual people, we have both. We can do a spiritual thing, which is to be our first reaction. Our knee-jerk reaction is to look to God, and we invite God into the horrible circumstances now, the world looks at this situation like the blindness of this man, and they think about causation. What type of environment caused that blindness? What caused that? Maybe it's the nutrition that the baby had that was born blind. Maybe it was the position in the womb. Maybe it was some accident that happened during pregnancy. And so people of the flesh look to the flesh for answers, and their first reaction is to look for causes. Jesus' people look at how God will be glorified in the horrible circumstances. We don't dwell on this thing that we have no control over, that we can't do anything about, and maybe we do look for more holistic ways by looking at causes. So we do invest in education. We do invest in medicine. Some of the first hospitals, some of the first universities are from Christians. So it's not that we neglect those things. But what is our first reaction? Who do we look to? And we pray. We pray for those difficult situations. We pray for the sick. And we're not praying to uncover the causes necessarily. We're praying for God to come into this. For God to be glorified in this. Because not every disease, not every situation, not every sickness, circumstance, or thing is caused from a tragedy or to be lamented over. That Jesus' people whose eyes have been opened spiritually, recognize Jesus is at work, and we're looking for how God is to be glorified in every situation. And we ask how the purposes of God are going to be fulfilled in people and in their circumstances. How will God be glorified in that situation, and how can we be a part of that? Not that we are the ones kind of spearheading that, God spearheading the whole thing, but how do we come behind this and see what God is doing, and then we can get into that? And so this is a picture of what's happening in chapter 9, that Jesus didn't heal by saying, like, well, the causation of this was this, guys. Like, this is what happened, and so that's why. And he doesn't do that. Because he can easily do that. He knows. But he does this. Verses 4 through 7. 
We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Did Jesus have to spit and make mud and tell him to wash in the pool of Siloam to be healed? No. Did not have to do that. Jesus could have simply just healed him. And it was done. But there's something so much deeper for not just this man to see, physically and spiritually, but for everyone that hears this story to be able to see. And it's not simply for a blind man to see, but for him and those all around Jesus to see what he said he was going to do. So why does Jesus spit on the ground and make this mud with this saliva, which is kind of gross, and you put it on someone's eyes, it's kind of disgusting. But this, this mud, this mud on the man's eyes, and then he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so we go back to thinking, remember, God is to be glorified. It's God that's going to be glorified. It's not just simply about healing a guy who's blind. Now, what does Siloam mean? Siloam means sent. Why do we need to know the meaning of Siloam? Because Jesus is being who God sent him to be, and Jesus is reenacting a story. He is directing people back to Genesis. He's directing people back to the creation of man, where they were created from the dust of the ground. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so this is happening in John chapter 9. That Jesus is breathing life into this man from the dust of the ground. Living water is creating life from the dust of the ground, from his mouth, spit breath into the dust and putting that mud on this man's eyes symbolic of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 Jesus is going to breathe a life into this man he will not just heal him physically he will also heal him spiritually and Jesus is in the act of this regeneration of this rebirth John chapter 3, verse 3, remember he's talking to Nicodemus and Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That unless we are regenerated, reborn from Jesus, we can't see the kingdom of God. Now where did Jesus send this man? He sends him to the pool of Siloam. And we're really familiar with this pool. We've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. And this water and this pool of Siloam was really important for the Feast of Booths, for this Feast of Tabernacles. This is where that water was taken from that pool. They were hiking with this procession up to the temple to the sacrificial altar, and then this water would be poured around the altar to celebrate, to remember what God did in the wilderness. It was to quench and to satisfy their deepest spiritual thirsts. And this water was from the pool called Scent. But the thing is, is that their thirst was never satisfied. They have to do this year after year that they found themselves to still be thirsty. Why? 
because it wasn't the pool that was sent to quench the spiritual thirst. It was Jesus who was sent to quench this spiritual thirst. Now, we talked about these verbs or these phrases that we notice in John, like light and water. There's another word in there. The verb send. If you do a word study on the word send in the Gospel of John, you're going to find that it appears over 60 times in that Gospel. And over two-thirds of those times, over 40 of those times, it's in reference to Jesus. Just like the word is in reference to Jesus. Water, light, scent. All of these words are so common in the Gospel of John referencing Jesus. And at the end of that feast, at the end of Feast of Booze, we have Jesus showing, proclaiming that he is the one who gives light. He is the one who is sent to satisfy thirst. He is the one who gives this new life by his power. And this miraculous transformation of this blind man is a picture of how the gospel works. By our sinful nature, we were born blind. But by God's grace, by the one he sent, we are reborn by his word. There is a breath from God, and then we see. There is a Holy Spirit from God, and then we are able to see. And our first reaction to everything is to go to Jesus. The first person we look to is Jesus. But notice the reaction of the people in this story, starting in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Just this miraculous transformation. But you notice that it's not followed by a glorification of God or a worship of God. It's followed by just this grilling. Like 20 questions. Like they can't simply be like, that's awesome. Praise God. Like I can't believe it. That's so awesome, man. They're not celebrating this man's ability to see. They're they're doubtful. And then they get progressively more spiteful and more malicious in this questioning. You'll notice that in this story. Now look back to John chapter 1 verse 5 because this is important to keep in mind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is what's happening in John chapter 9. The darkness is trying to overcome the light of Jesus. And so we just read of the first of four interrogations that is happening to this guy. And the blind man's neighbors are just dumbfounded with what's happened. This is the first interrogation. They don't even recognize him. Something's completely changed about this guy. Not that he can just see, but something has just changed about him. And they ask him, how can you see? And he simply just tells them, Jesus made mud, put it on my eyes. I was told to wash, I didn't, that's it. Then the neighbors, that's not good enough for them. So what do they do? Bring this guy for a second interrogation to the Pharisees. So it's the blind literally leading the once blind, but they're going from blind to blind because these Pharisees are blind too. You remember when that paralytic 
that was trying to get into the pool, and they were just like these Sabbath kind of, I don't know what else to call it, like traffic cops. They're looking to issue traffic tickets for breaking the Sabbath, right? It's these same guys, and we've met these guys before because they were so uptight about Jesus healing a paralyzed guy. And so it's these Pharisees who are just looking for people who break the Sabbath, and here it is again. It's the Sabbath, and they're out there with their little pamphlets, and they get bent out of shape again, here in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. And you're thinking like, what? Are you kidding me? But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And, and there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. And so these Sabbath enforcers, they don't celebrate, they don't rejoice that this blind man can see, just like they didn't celebrate that the paralytic can walk. All that they're worried about is, you broke a rule. And a lot of Christians are like this, aren't we? They come to Jesus, and it's a miraculous thing, and then it's like, uh, you got drunk. You did this. And they're pointing out this thing. And it's not to say, like, yeah, drunkenness is fine. Go ahead and do it. It's, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we're missing the miracle. We're missing what God did. And, and so here these guys are, these, these Sabbath enforcers, and they're just breaking out their pamphlet, and they're like, you know what, I... I know that making mud is breaking the Sabbath. We just have to find it. Especially if he spit. If he spit on Sabbath, I know he broke the Sabbath. And you know what? It, how did he do that? Like, did he bend over? Because if he knelt, then that's a Sabbath breaker. And so he, they're just looking for ways that Jesus, the Sabbath breaker, we got to catch him at something. But then there are some people who saw these inconsistencies. And they're just like, you guys are nuts. This guy can see. What are you talking about? If Jesus was this sinful Sabbath breaker, how could he heal this guy of blindness on the Sabbath? Jesus is a good guy. This guy was once blind and now he can see. So what's the problem? And so there's this division happening here. And instead of glorifying God and seeing what purpose God had for this guy, they want to get to a cause and they want to look at other things other than this miracle. And so they revert back to their flesh. They revert back into their world. And they ask him, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, he put mud on my eyes, I washed it off, and I can see. And this is all the Pharisees can think about is, what a sinner. What a sinner. He can't even keep the Sabbath, that guy. They don't look at, he healed the guy of blindness? And we, we might read this story and we realize that this is how people are. This is how religious people are. This is how Christians in churches are. That the darkness keeps trying to overcome the light and that we're not immune to these things that are coming out of our own flesh. This is the gospel in that you're telling people of the miraculous transformation the gospel has had in your life. That it delivered you from addiction, that it healed your marriage, that it miraculously transformed your life. 
And if you share these stories, the, the weird thing is that even Christians will respond with, where did you get your addiction counseling from? Or where did you get that marriage counseling? And they revert right back to their flesh. And they don't go to God and they don't celebrate with God and recognize God did something. They just look to the flesh like, how did you do that? How did you overcome that? And they're blind. Religious people can be the most blind. They can't see. And so then they go to this third interrogation. And this is a messed up interrogation because they go to this guy's parents. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received the sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue because Jesus declared this. He proclaimed this at the Feast of Booths, right? At the great day, at the Feast of Tabernacles. He pronounced this. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. I mean, how low can you go? You go to this guy's parents who had to deal with this kid since birth that he was blind. And so there was no braille back then. There was no cane. There's no seeing eye dogs. There's no anything. These parents raised this kid without any of those resources. And they had to deal with this stigma, this belief that it was their sin that caused that. And now these guys are going back to them and saying, is this your son? Really, we dealt with all of this stuff and you have the audacity to come and say, like, is this our son? Why do they answer the way that they did? Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, meaning they'd lose everything. Shunned from the community. Kicked out of the community. People would not want anything to do with them anymore, and they couldn't interact with them anymore. All the buying and the selling, no longer with their community. They would have to be like Gentiles. And so none of the ceremonial stuff, they would be considered unclean in, in dealing with the Gentiles, never to interact with the people that they have known their entire lives. No family, no nothing. And the horrible thing also, this guy's poor parents, they couldn't celebrate with him openly. This son of theirs that could now see, they couldn't be openly happy and publicly happy. They had to just keep it to themselves because they did not want to be excommunicated from them. And they had to live in this fear because of these sinister religious people. They can't get the blind men to talk bad about Jesus. They can't get the community to unanimously agree to turn on Jesus. And so they dig into the Sabbath manual to try to find out how Jesus broke the Sabbath. And then they stoop as low as to go to this guy's parents and say like, well, tell us, tell us if this is your kid and prove it. 
and they can't find Jesus committing any sin no matter how hard they try to manipulate the story or no matter how hard they try to intimidate the people or the blind man or his parents. They just can't do it. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It keeps on happening. And these religious leaders stop at nothing to go after Jesus. They'll do whatever they need to to find Jesus guilty so that they can put a stop to this Messiah talk And they're really upset at what Jesus said, that he's the living water, that he's the light of life. And they are just angered to the point they want to kill him. They want Jesus dead. And these parents are really smart. They don't want to incriminate themselves, and so they say this in verse 23, he's of age, ask him. Here's the fourth interrogation, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Again, back to this causation thing, right? Not looking to God. He answered them, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become the disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God had spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. They excommunicated him. The thing that the parents were afraid of, they did to this guy. Imagine the scene. This guy's never seen anything before, and now he's in this court with all of the Pharisees dressed up in their religious garb. It's like going in a courtroom for the first time you've never experienced, and you see the other side all lawyered up with their suits and ties and and dress suits and all this kind of stuff, and the judge with his gown up there and the bailiff and all this other thing. You've never seen in your life before, and this is what you see. You're just like, Dude, let me not see again, right? Like, this is crazy. And so he's in this trial. It's the first time he sees anything. It's the first time he sees Hebrew written out. All those words that he heard, his parents read, or when he was in synagogue, all those words that he heard, he sees them in picture form for the first time. He's saying, oh, that's what the law looks like. That's what those words look like. It's all written down and and then all these people. So imagine just being here, standing before all these people, standing before the law open up. And the ironic thing of all of this is this moderator of the interrogation tells him, give glory to God. When none of them even see that God did this, this miraculous transformation, like, None of them see it. They're all blind. And then this moderator just flat out lies in the court of law where it's supposed to be truth-telling. He doesn't know that Jesus is a sinner. 
I mean, there, there's no evidence for that. They haven't proven that. They, they've tried to. They've tried to do this Sabbath breaker thing, whether it's the paralytic or whether it's this blind man. That, but where's the evidence? There's no evidence. And as Jesus people, we are to be helpful spiritually and physically. We're to do both. But our first reaction is to be to Jesus. And then we look to help. But what do these people do? Look at verse 28. They reviled him. And you're like, what? That guy was blind just a little bit ago. And here they are reviling him. And he's seeing all this. He sees what this reviling looks like now. And they're not celebrating with him. They don't glorify God in this healing Rather, what have these people done so far? They've caused division in their community. They've pulled out these bogus claims about breaking the Sabbath and they're lying. They've dragged out his parents to interrogate them and now they're reviling him. Who's really blind in this story? This man was reviled. Where else do you read of this verb reviled? It's only in another story. It was Jesus being reviled by the criminals who were hanging next to him at the crucifixion. That's the only place you read of this word reviled. Matthew 27, 44, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew 15, 32, Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You notice that it's those who are blind and those who are dying who do the reviling. Same thing in this court of law that's happening. Like, They're the ones dying. They're the ones who are blind. They're the ones who are reviling because they can't see this miraculously transformed person of Christ. And this blind man who has been healed of blindness, he put everything at risk to be able to see spiritually. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, which tells us he did confess Jesus to be Christ, and so that's why he was cast out. And now I'm sure his parents, as they were celebrating inside their house, not publicly because they were scared, and they're like, man, this is awesome. Son, be careful what you say. This is what's happening. This is the threat that's out there. And I'm sure there were people in that neighborhood that pulled them aside and said, hey, um, you got to lay low because those guys, they're going to kick you out of here. You're not going to have a community. You're not going to be able to see your parents very often because you can't make them unclean if you get kicked out, right? Like this is going to put everyone at risk in, in your family. Everything that you hold dear, everything that you hold precious is at stake of being lost. Every familial, every social connection that you had, the livelihood that you're looking forward to for yourself or that future family for yourself, Anything worth anything is at risk. And here are the people in power who are going to take that away from you. And here they are reviling him. But the thing is, he can't deny it. He can see. Not just physically, but also spiritually. And so you look at how courageous and how bold he was in verse 27. I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
So essentially, what's the problem? There's no problem. I already told you what happened. You wouldn't listen. You want me to just repeat the story over again? And then here's his little rub. Here's a little jab that he is, and his little bit of salt. Do you want to be a disciple also? And these guys are ticked. They revile him. They're the people in power. They can do these things. But the thing is, he can't deny what happened. That Jesus gave him what no one else ever could. Physical sight and spiritual sight. And this is the question that we're all asked this morning. Do you also want to become his disciples? It's the all-important question of this entire morning for all of us. And the blind man taunts them like the prophets of old toward the people who would not believe God. And he said to them in verse 30, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Like You guys are supposed to know. You're the religious people. You're asking me all these questions about where he comes from? Like, like I'm supposed to know. Like This is unbelievable. You call yourselves scholars. You don't know. And it's funny that Jesus opened his eyes and not theirs. And this is what they did to him. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? They cast him out, and so instead of rejoicing and celebrating, glorifying God, they do this really horrible thing. And they tell him, you were born blind because you were a sinner. That's why you were born blind. And now, get out of here. Don't ever come back. Excommunicated. Very serious punishment. And then this happens. This is so awesome. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him. It gives me goosebumps. Gives me chills. Because Jesus hears this extremely sad news. And Jesus is like, we got to find him. Let's go look for him. You guys go look for him. They find him. Jesus had him in his mind that he had to find him, to go to him, to adopt him, to bring him in. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? We don't even know this guy's name. You know, when we go to heaven, we don't even know who to ask for. But you notice the progression of this guy's understanding of Jesus through those four interrogations that we just went through. First interrogation, look at verse 11. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. That was the first one. Look at this second interrogation. Look at the progression. Verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. So from man to prophet. Now, the third one is when he goes to his parents. And so it's not him speaking something directly, but they said, we know that this is our son, verse 20, and that he was born blind, but now how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. And then the fourth one, verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Man, prophet, sent from God. Verse 36, he answered, And who he is, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. 
a guy who was once blind, and he is he who is speaking to you. Man, prophet, being from God, Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says that you've seen him. That's me. I am he. In verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. What's the first thing he does? So was I born of sin? Was, were, were my parents, were they born? Is that, why, is, that, is that how I was blind? Is that what caused my blindness? It, no. His first reaction, verse 38, he worshipped him. He worshipped him. All that the things that all those other people should have done, he does it. Jesus is the light of the world who opens the eyes of the blind. And those whose eyes are open believe in him and trust in him. We become worshipers of Christ. That our understanding of Jesus grows, it progresses. And we become increasingly courageous and bold to share because we can't deny what happened to us. You couldn't deny it. Who Jesus is in your life, what he did in your life. And we are prepared to be excommunicated from our communities and count everything as lost because we know what Jesus does. Knowing that the Lord Jesus is our Lord and Savior, it's worth it. That we've counted the cost and it's worth it because you simply can't deny what happened to you. The problem that I think a lot of Christians have is that they haven't had this transformation, that it's just become maybe a cultural thing, or that they've just grown up with it and it's just become like a sociological thing, an anthropological thing, a psychological, I don't know what it's, but it's not a spiritual thing. And this is the issue. You see, we're familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace, right? And you remember this line, was blind but now I see. That's something to be so excited about that you see. This is something for us to praise God about and to worship God about. Let's close this. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world for those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, if you're just physically blind, then you're not guilty. You don't have to go back to this causation thing about saying like, oh, your parents sinned or I sinned or whatever. But since you're saying that you do see, that you're claiming that you spiritually see, but you really don't, then you're guilty. Everyone knows Amazing Grace. Even non-believers know that hymn that Newton wrote. And it says, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But is that true for every single one of us? Is this true? And this is what the gospel is. Telling somebody that you once were blind, but now you see. And we know what this means so that we can share it with others. Do you truly see? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this guy who we don't even know his name. But you used him so powerfully. You used him 
to point out this incredible feast that you showed that you were the light of life, that you showed you were living water and culminates into what you did for this man. I pray, Lord, for every person here to be able to truly see that we have a first reaction to go to you, Jesus, that we don't fall back into our flesh knowing that we are spiritual beings, that we have something so much more powerful to be reliant on. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have communion elements, let's partake in communion together. If you don't, just hold up your hands and we can get those over to you. In this sacrament, this symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us, that we can have fellowship with God. Let's take this in Jesus' name. And the fruit of the vine, Jesus' blood spilled for us, cleansing us of our sins to have fellowship with God in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for this reminder, this celebration that we get to have regularly to help us remember what you did. You tell us to do this until your return, and we are so looking forward to that. In Jesus' name.